Hello, everybody. I'm Jason Mikula, and welcome back to Fintech Business Podcast, where I interview leaders from across fintech, banking, and crypto. If you don't already subscribe, you can get this podcast automatically in your inbox. Just sign up at fintechbusinessweekly.com. In this episode, I sat down with Joe Robinson, co-founder and CEO at financial crime management startup Hummingbird, live at Money 2020. We had a chance to talk about Joe's background and what led him to his role at Hummingbird, the pain of using Google Docs and email for case management, the complexity of managing compliance in today's partnership-driven fintech universe, how realistic Ozark is, and more. All right, I'm here with Joe Robinson, CEO of Hummingbird, live at Money 2020 in Amsterdam. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about, um, before we get started, sort of your background, what led to you know Hummingbird, uh, and also a little bit for listeners who may not be familiar, um, sort of the role or services that, that Hummingbird offers. Yeah, happy to. Uh, Hummingbird is a platform for managing financial crime, uh, but there's there's a good story about how we got into that. Um, I'm a product manager and product designer by training. Uh, I was started my career in the online video space, actually, totally outside of the financial world. And uh, after a few years in that, I found myself working for Square as one of the early product managers there, led mm-hmm. the merchant dashboard team and Square's early online stores products, so the e-commerce products that they provided. Um, that was a great you know, place for me to learn about the payment space, fintech in general. I was part of the, the rise of Square as it became a very big company. Um, and then actually, ironically, the founder of the online video company was Jeremy Allaire, who's now the CEO of Circle. Uh, and he pulled me back into the crypto world uh, when he started uh, Circle initially as VP of product. Um, I think the... Uh, you know, the journey from that into Hummingbird was basically uh, worked on the products there at Circle. We launched, uh, like many fintechs in the space, in particular in crypto, we had, uh, you know, challenges with fraud and, um, of course, regulatory issues. We were trying to be as regulated as possible. Uh, so I ended up as the buyer for a lot of the services in, in the AML and risk space um, and got to look and look at and, and use a lot of the vendors in the space. Um, and we, we noticed that one of the things that was missing from the industry was a place to tie it all together. You can buy data sources, you can buy KYC, you can buy profile information, public records, criminal records all around the world. Um, you can buy algorithm providers that will help you screen transactions and customers. But when it comes time to actually investigate uh, unusual behavior, the things that compliance and risk teams yeah. need to look at, uh, it was left almost to completely manual or in-house tools. Um, so would that be in cases Google Docs and email? Google Docs, email, uh, lots of Excel, right? Transaction data, manual processes. Um, and, the, you know, it's all subject to audit. Like the, the fun part about this practice area is like you might be asked to look at a case that you completed six months ago and it's one of, you know, 200,000 cases or something like that. So you're trying to recreate how you went through the decision-making process and what you looked at. And um, so Hummingbird is basically a platform for managing the compliance risk team's work, um, which is predominantly around investigation types. So I mean, that, that's actually a great segue to, you know, a question or a topic I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, I imagine that, you know, you work with 
a lot of startups as well as more established institutions. Mm -hmm. um, but particularly when it comes to earlier stage companies, whether more traditional financial services or in crypto, what are some of the most common you know, either misconceptions or, or maybe mistakes you see companies make you know, when perhaps they're early in their life cycle and they don't you know, understand or have the proper staffing for sort of the compliance uh, yeah. that they may need for the type of business or service that they offer? I mean, Hummingbird works with, you know, literally any financial institution in the world. Um, we, we don't provide, you know, KYC directly or transaction monitoring directly, which means, you know, by handling the investigations and reporting procedures, um, those processes look the same across financial institutions in every segment, in every geography, um, with a few formatting exceptions. Um, and um, so we see it all. To answer your question, we see, you know, challenges across the industry from large to small and different segments, things like that. Um, I think the most common when uh, companies are getting started up, so early stage fintechs and things like that, um, is just most founders are product-oriented folks that uh, don't come from a compliance background mm -hmm. and probably don't fully appreciate um, what it means to actually be a financial institution, which is, you know, basically an agreement with the government to be compliant, right? <laughs> that is the definition of a financial institution. And so, you know, it's sort of um, not the thing you want to focus on the most when you're trying to get from zero to one with mm -hmm. a new financial service, but it's something that you should be aware of and empathize with as one of the most important aspects of your business and make sure you invest appropriately to, to staff it and to have the right expertise brought in. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've earlier in my career sort of worked on, on both sides of that equation, right? From you know, an earlier startup that maybe didn't have the resources or uh, to your point, you know, compliance wasn't top of mind because growth, you know, users and being able to go raise another round of financing were the most important things because if you don't have you know that series a series b series c if you don't have that money and you're not growing yeah. then you die uh and on the opposite end of the spectrum you know working at uh goldman launching marcus where there was a huge existing business um that you know they didn't want to put at risk understandably by any uh, you know, not ticking every box yeah. when it came to compliance uh, and regulation when launching markets. So I've seen sort of both, of course, both, yeah. both approaches. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're you know in the shoes of Goldman Sachs, right? Like you're going to be very heavily scrutinized for anything new that you do, right? And and so they're they're keenly aware of that and invest appropriately in these practice areas. So. I mean, changing gears a little bit. Um, you know, some of the topics that are top of mind you know, here at Money 2020, uh, embedded finance and sort of interrelated banking as a service, you know, my sense is that those capabilities sort of add a number of hops in between an end consumer and the underlying entity, you know, whether it's a bank or another type of financial institution, even right. in the crypto space. Can you talk a little bit about how how that changes or 
I imagine might complicate you know some of these compliance questions that we're talking about. If you know I'm interacting with an app that is interacting with a banking as a service provider, that underneath that is some partner bank. I imagine that 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 significantly complicates some of these processes. Yeah, I would I would love to. Um, I, th- I find it fascinating. One of the sort of things to realize about the ecosystem that we see in fintech today, and for fintech entrepreneurs, uh, this is something you can empathize with a bit. The banks or the the sort of legally chartered financial institution uh, providing their services to you, uh, they can't legally pass the obligations of compliance onto a third-party technology provider, an outsourced staffing firm, anything like that. They can certainly use those, uh, but they're still holding overall responsibility for the effectiveness of the program and the implementation. And that's just a characteristic of, of you know regulatory compliance. Um, so you're exactly right. Like. Uh, you get some of these relationships, particularly like B2B fintechs that are built on top of, you know, vast platforms that are licensed into multiple banks. You're at least three or four hops from the end user. Um, and so what that that bank at the end of that value chain needs is uh, proper oversight of the policies and procedures and testing uh, throughout the system. So. Uh, that is something Hummingbird helps with, so we help enable bank and fintech uh, sponsor relationships and oversight. Um, but even if you're not using our service, of course, um, it's just something to be aware of. Um, I think from the fintech perspective, it manifests itself as what can feel like tedious uh, requests from your bank partner or lots of hoops to jump through or audits or things like that. And the the thing to realize is like, the bank probably doesn't want to be doing that. Um, They just are legally obligated to, so. No, I mean the, you know, mentioning Google Docs, emails, and uh, metaphorical duct tape definitely had flashbacks to working with bank partners, uh, emailing, you know, in my case, emailing PDFs of, you know, thousands of Google ad ad copies or ads that, you know, banner ads that would run on Facebook or other places. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, it, it ultimately the, you know, regulatory responsibility lies with the charter holder and they cannot outsource that, whether it's, you know, a neobank arrangement, lending other products. Um, but yeah, the, the, some of the tools or workflows, uh, I've experienced in my career have been painful. Would be putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's something we love doing. I mean, a, a quick plug for Hummingbird is that we we power this practice area for Evolve Bank and Trust, which is a big sponsor bank for a lot of fintechs. Uh, we power it for Coastal Community Bank, for Column, the new the new bank from a Plaid co-founder. Um, and um, it's something we believe can be made a lot better through technology because, as you say, it's mostly left to documents and report types and PDFs and spreadsheets and things like that. Um, that's painful on both ends, right? Like nobody, <laughs> you can trust me, like nobody in that relationship on the bank side or the fintech side likes that uh, part of the process. But um with, with our platform, it's all automated and more collaborative, so um, much easier to keep tabs on. Well, and in addition to some of the like KYC due diligence stuff we've been discussing, mm-hmm. there are other use cases as well, right? I was looking through uh, your site, you know, preparing for today, and you know, I noticed fraud, which mm-hmm. I, I think folks who may be 
less in the weeds often group all of these things you know together like yeah. okay kyc aml like the point of that is to prevent fraud which in my experience or understanding nope. isn't quite isn't quite the case uh i learned Dual when, purpose yeah. yeah when when investigating my own uh identity being stolen like no these are not mm-hmm. <laughs> these are not synonymous you know kyc yeah. aml is not not necessarily uh, intended to prevent fraud is kind of a distinct thing. Yeah. Um, I guess, can you sort of unpack a little bit the the differences between these, you know, as it relates crime, to what, yeah. you know, within this sort of broader bucket of fin crime, you know, if somebody is investigating fraud, you know, versus doing a customer due diligence or enhanced due diligence, mm-hmm. you know, what are the differences in those processes yeah what are the differences in like the kinds of data used I mean and sort of how how hummingbird facilitates that we we internally when we're onboarding new team members um, we we like to draw the distinction between fraud and money laundering as you know with with fraud I steal your credit card and I'm trying to steal money you know from you basically it's sort of a direct crime it's usually perpetuated on um, the individual level um, it's it's fascinating because like from an activity perspective, yeah. money laundering is almost exactly the opposite. I would never commit fraud as a money launder because I want to avoid detection. <laughs> I don't want you know the cardholder yeah. calling in and saying, "Hey, what's this charge?" Whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, money laundering, of course, is um, you know the vehicle of much larger crimes of profit, human trafficking and uh, drug cartels and things like that, organized crime. Um, and so that that distinction I helps, I think helps folks understand why there are risk and compliance groups, why AML is a separate practice area from fraud. They mm-hmm. certainly benefit from some of the same data points, as you say. Um, so data points that you collect in KYC or suspicious behaviors or things like that. But um, but yeah, it's important to kind of understand that you're dealing with two very different types of, of crime uh, mm-hmm. when you're trying to prevent these things. So. I mean, to segue into the crypto space a little bit, yeah. how how has, you know, sort of broadly speaking, how do you think sort of crypto and some of these related concepts, you know, DeFi, mm-hmm. Web3, et cetera, yeah. um, you know, how has that impacted, you know, sort of the topics that we've been talking about so far? So, I mean, certainly, I think on one end of the spectrum, you, you seem to have... Uh, exchanges and companies that are, you know, incorporated in the U.S. and, you know, very intentionally and diligently want to sort of play within this KYC AML mm-hmm. uh, process. And then also, you know, sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, offshore, that, you know, sort of the feature to the end customer is, is that it's you know, less regulated or unregulated. And yeah. Also, some of these you know DeFi protocols where there is no entity, right? There's no legal entity that you can go serve a you know a cease and desist on <laughs> because it's some you know autonomous protocol. I mean, how you know how have you seen that space evolve? How do you think about it from you know from where you sit? I find it's it's useful to simplify a little bit. You know, first you know acknowledging the complexity and the innovation in the crypto space. You know, last I checked, some seven thousand you know currencies that are registered with exchanges and uh, all sorts of interesting protocols and use cases that are emergent. Um, it is very complex, uh, but I think from the eyes of uh, compliance and fin crime and things like that. 
you can actually simplify it a bit. Um, the focus tends to be on the movement between fiat currencies mm -hmm. and cryptocurrencies. And very simple reason for that, right? Um, for the most part, the utility value of money is mostly realized in fiat currencies today. You pay for groceries and food and restaurants and rent and mortgages and things like that with fiat currencies with very few exceptions. Um, and so any you know criminal activity that might be using cryptocurrency as a payment vehicle or things on the dark web, um, you know, eventually will come back into fiat currencies. So that's where you tend to focus mm -hmm. risk and compliance and regulation. Um, I think we'll see regulation evolve, but there's a disproportionate amount of impact to your question on um, on the money services businesses that actually facilitate those exchanges, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're fa facilitating currency exchange, therefore they tend to be regulated that way. Mm -hmm. um, the eyes of regulation today doesn't care that much what the currency you're exchanging into or out of is. Um, now, for any you know true compliance nerds on there, um, on the <laughs> listening, uh, you know, heavy caveat that I understand that there are some distinctions. Um, but I think for the most part, for folks listening, um, you know, the focus tends to be on those on and off ramps. Uh, those are some of the biggest challenges in yeah. cryptocurrency. Um, and you can kind of put to the side some of the subgenres of digital currencies and blockchains and things like that that are happening. So. I mean, that, that makes sense and yeah. tends to be how I think about it where... You know, it, you know, if you're doing crime stuff yeah. and you're using Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, at some point, if you want to use the proceeds from your crime, you're right. probably turning it back into dollars or pesos or euros or something. Mm -hmm. And so you have that you know, choke point or access point where that conversion is happening. And that would seem to be sort of the easiest first place to... Uh, enact this sort of regulatory regime. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and, and that's what we see today. That's what you see in the regulations and the required licensing. Um, I think for the most part, companies that are just pure prey crypto, they don't touch uh, fiat currencies. They, they don't have the same regulatory obligations or licensing obligations. Um, so. You know, I think for them, the the regulatory scrutiny probably manifests as like partners, bank partners, and things like that that mm -hmm. need to understand their activity before providing a bank account. I mean, a, a lot of what we've been discussing is sort of predicated on yeah. like the primacy of the Western financial order, right? Mm -hmm. U.S. dollars, global reserve currency. You know, organizations like the FATF who sort of create the guidelines, uh, national governments that implement them, you know, SWIFT, correspondent banking, etc. Right. Do you, you know, th there's been maybe not a lot of change yet, but signs that change is probably coming, mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, CBDCs, which I don't think is going to happen in the U.S. anytime <laughs> in the near future, but it's a topic Never of discussion. <laughs> uh, you know, China, where it's already actively, you know, in play. Yeah. Obviously, it's very difficult to predict what you know what the future holds, but there seem to be, you know, call it competitors or a dispersion of dispersion of systems, dispersion of control that, that's unfolding. You know, how 
how do you think that that could impact the ability uh, to sort of use some of the tools we use today, right? I mean, yeah. whether it's sanctions or whether it's you know components of the AML or KYC processes, yeah. you know, the sort of foundations underpinning some of those things appear to be rapidly changing or, or likely right. to change. Right. I, it's fascinating, right, because uh, you mentioned central bank digital currencies, which, you know, as, as the CEO of an anti-financial crime company, you know, I, I really care about and I'm very bullish on from the perspective of anti-financial crime efforts, actually. Um, you know, within the digital asset realm or digital currency realm, uh, you could imagine central bank digital currencies with the tracking capabilities and the digital footprint that they have actually being able to eliminate a lot of things like shell companies and, um, you know, uh, illegal use of proceeds and things like that uh, just by basically being able to track them. There's a flip side of the coin, right, which is a privacy concern that people have. Um, but I, I think it's interesting because, you know, if you're concerned about privacy, you probably also wouldn't be using credit cards and, you know, all the digital payment types that we use today, right? Well, it's interesting. And I'll, you know, yeah. I tend to be a little bit either skeptical or critical of some of the narrative around cryptocurrencies. And, you know, some of the talking points you tend to hear are, you know, it's... Uh, immutable, censorship resistant, mm-hmm. privacy, and the privacy one I think is you know particularly wrong mm-hmm. uh, to put it really bluntly. Uh, if you think of if I have your you know wallet address, right? You know maybe it's pseudo anonymous, but if I send you you know five dollars worth of Bitcoin for your coffee, and now I have your wallet address, I can see every transaction you've ever done, right? Um, it's far from private. Yeah. <laughs> so in a sense, it's like the opposite of private. Yeah. Um, and to the sort of censorship-resistant point, you know, we've seen plenty of recent examples of U.S. law enforcement seizing Bitcoin. So, you know, it, it's clearly, you know, yeah, not necessarily, it's not immune to that. Is it better or worse than, you know, putting your crime money at Citibank? I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but it's clearly not fulfilling <laughs> those things. So, I mean, the, the critiques of, or potential critiques of CBDC of, you know, all privacy, of, of course, privacy is a concern, mm-hmm. but I think some of the, you know, some of the parties that may be making that argument, you know, it's like, it's not necessarily true of many of these cryptocurrencies either. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 absolutely it, it, it's kind of a crazy thing that people tend to think of um, the cryptocurrency world as being anonymous and and hidden when in fact like it's much more trackable than many other forms of currency. Um, you know, I think that if you really wanted to launder money, and you know, I'm not giving anything away. There are industry stats about this. The number one vehicle for that is cash. Um, and uh, it's, you know, I think as we live out our daily lives, we're recording here in Amsterdam and I was in London before this. I have no, you know, pounds sterling in my wallet. I have no euros in my wallet. You don't need it, right? We're almost a completely cash-free society. So, um, you know, the, the, the assets, the aspects of cash are mostly going away through just consumer behavior anyway. 
Even uh, the last time I was in New York, which you know tends to to have that you know twenty dollar minimum credit card, mm-hmm. I managed to get by a full week without using cash, no cash. last time I was there, which was nice. Yeah, I think the pandemic probably yeah. um, really put a, a nail in the coffin of, of cash for most consumer use cases. You know, particularly in cities and things like that, where. Uh, when I was working at Square, we were sort of studying this, you know, the the, the sort of utility value of cash versus payments, and, and payments are just far more useful, right? They're far more, excuse me, convenient in almost every way. So. I think particularly, you know, having spent a good amount of time living outside of the United States now, I mean, I first, the, the impetus for me actually starting to use Apple Pay Uh, was when I was traveling to London and to Dublin frequently Mm -hmm. and with an American card they would you'd had to do chip and sig Mm -hmm. and so you know the clerk would always look annoyed because they're like trying to find a pen and there's a paper receipt (laughs) and I realized and this is like five years ago at this point I realized oh if I use Apple Pay I don't need to do this yeah uh, and then, you know, eventually I moved to London and, and now to the Netherlands. And it's like, yeah, everything is contactless, whether yes. you're using the physical card or, or you know, a wallet on your phone. Um, and there's utility. It's faster. Yeah. It's easier, uh, certainly versus, you know, using, using banknotes here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's nearly universally accepted. There's one thing I need cash for, uh, and it's the... the here in, in Amsterdam or the Netherlands, it's very common to have uh, guys who like wash the windows of your house and they yeah. will only take cash. Ah, okay, yeah. Uh, but otherwise, otherwise, 100% card acceptance. I mean, I, I was this trip to London was the first time I've seen some pubs and things like that that were only accepting tap payments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think on the flip side, you know, particularly in you know, in the United States. You have some risk of going to uh, cash not accepted, mm-hmm. where there's like a sort of financial inclusion exclusion question. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I see that in businesses here in the Netherlands, where it's like pin. They refer to as like pin only, like card only. Yeah. Uh, and that's increasingly common as well. Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, okay, I'll have two last questions for you. Sure. One. Um, at a policy level, mm-hmm. you know, if you could make one change as far as you know, AML, anti-money laundering policy, that you thought would make it more effective, mm. you know, and, and gobs of money get spent on this you know, every year, you know, at banks, at non-banks, to comply with the regulation. If you could change one thing at a policy level that you thought would make it more impactful, what would it be? Easy one for me. Um, I I think one of the biggest uh, factors that leads to anti-financial crime being, you know, not as effective as it could be is just lack of uh, collaboration in in the industry. So, you know, you take a classic example of, you know, uh, Bank A and Bank B are are both involved in activity. The criminal is sort of passing money back and forth. Um, You know, today they can of course, collaborate and share that information with each other. There is a legal legal safe harbor in the U.S., an equivalent legal safe harbor around the world. Uh, but, um, you know, they mostly, you know, will not. It's a tedious process. It's very manual. It's very slow. Uh, the information doesn't get to law enforcement as quickly if they do that. Um, and so I would I would look for ways on the regulatory side to really encourage and push collaboration between financial institutions, 
Um, the, the additional vector there is, um, for a variety of reasons, it's not particularly easy for law enforcement to go back and collaborate with uh, the financial institutions that found the behavior and reported on it. And um, I think that's another thing where you kind of have you know, two players on the same team that essentially never talk to each other or very, very rarely do. Um, and there's great people on both sides making effort that want to collaborate, but um, it's just challenging. And, and so I would, I would look to shake it up and sort of uh, encourage collaboration both within the industry and between law enforcement and industry. But that um, really resonates. I mean, I, I remember when I was playing amateur uh, detective and in investigating uh, my own ID theft case, mm-hmm. and I was like, I could call all the institutions where these this person or persons had you know opened accounts or applied for things in my name, but they would only know sort of the next link in the chain, right? So I called yeah. uh, Bestag. Bestag could say, oh, the money he attempted to put it into an account at or Fifth Third, but that's all they could see, right? So it's sort of like the next link, but you know, I through very tedious number of phone calls could sort of piece together you know there was like six or eight companies involved where you know money originated here moved to bank a moved to bank b went to a sort of wallet app and then like the trail got lost after that but yeah there's like a a visibility problem of you can only see maybe your institution and the transactions going in and out yeah but you know in a fin crime scenario that's going to be part of a wider web and, and you know that's the point right obscure yeah. uh, obscure what's happening obscure the trail i mean if uh, if they yeah. collaborate at all right yeah. the the medium of collaboration is going to be email and spreadsheets and mailed documents there's no you know until hummingbird i'm not aware of a collaborative investigation yeah. platform um, we're doing a lot of work in this area yeah. we we facilitate the collaboration now between uh, partners, um, fintech and bank partners, as we discussed, um, and that that offers an interesting perspective because some of the bank partners will see subjects popping up from multiple fintechs, and they're they're able to actually aggregate some of that information, which I think is a huge step forward. Uh, but we want to do more, and we want to involve law enforcement um, in a more real time basis with the investigations, and um, I think we'd see better better outcomes from that, and and um, you know just increased effectiveness of of fan crime. Last question. Did you watch Ozark? And if so, what did they get right? What did they get wrong? (laughs) I did watch Ozark season one. um, And uh, they get a lot right. It's actually, you know, there's a lot of interesting things. Um, Trying to think which parts, because he he tries to launder money in so many different ways that... um, Uh, There's a casino, there's a funeral home. (laughs) Construction companies. Hotel, I think, motel. I think uh, they got right... Um, you know, like a construction firm or something like that, the way you'd launder money through that is is sort of like contracting it to someone you're colluding with and, and essentially overpaying for the services and then the money is sort of looks like it's coming from the construction services but um, is actually coming from, from elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but great, great show and um, yeah, a lot of... Uh, I'll, I'll put a plug in too for your readers. There, there's a great movie I was discussing with some people earlier, um, the Lost Leonardo, about the Leonardo da Vinci painting uh, that surfaced a few years ago, and I think sold for 450 million. Great movie for a variety of reasons about the art world, but also showcases some of how 
um, arts, particularly on the high end, mm-hmm. serve as a vehicle for transporting large amounts of money between countries and things like that. So I'll have to add that to my list. Very good um, movie. Thank you so much for the time. Thank Where you. can listeners uh, find you and find out more about Hummingbird? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are just hummingbird.co. Um, feel free to check out the site there. I'm Joe at hummingbird.co. Very easy to remember. So um, please check us out there or LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. That's it for this episode of FinTech Business Podcast. A big thank you to Joe Robinson of Hummingbird for taking the time and to Money2020 for putting together an amazing event. Until next time, thanks for listening.